You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. I've been doing a series, Money, Sex and Power. Money, Sex and Power. This is actually the third week, so you can probably guess I'm going to be speaking on power. Power. This series I found fascinating because I think it has a huge impact on relationships. I think money has an impact on your personal pocket. It impacts you. Sex has a huge relationship within the home and within your marriage. Power, what I'm talking about this morning, impacts every single relationship. Donald Trump. I still believe at the beginning of the service he was a presidential candidate. I'm not sure if anything's changed. He says this, love him or hate him. Trump is a man who is certain about what he wants and sets out to get it. No holds barred. Women find his power almost as much of a turn on as his money. He said that about himself. Nobody else said that. (laughs) I thought it's fascinating, isn't it? Here's a guy and there's just this sort of insatiable desire, you can almost say, for power. I looked up the 10 most powerful people in the world, according to Forbes magazine. And number one, Vladimir Putin. Yeah, the Russian leader, German leader, the American leader, and the Pope. What I found absolutely fascinating, though, was in the top 10 was David Cameron. David who? <laughs> it's funny how power changes, isn't it? You know, you could say, oh, well, when this was made, oh, this was really, really powerful. But actually now, things have changed. Some of you would have seen the film Eat, Pray, Love. The author of that book writes this, I met an old lady once, almost 100 years old, and she told me, there are only two questions that human beings have ever fought over through history. How much do you love me? And who's in charge? You see, I think this is a huge thing with every relationship. Who's in charge? Who has the power? I know when I was at a primary school, and we used to have this sort of thing where we'd pick teams. You used to line everybody up, and you say, right, we're going we're to have a football game, and it'd be me as one captain, or a friend as another captain. Right, you can join my team. You can join my team. You can join. And then you get to about the last four, and you say, That's all right, you can have them. (laughs) You see, the thing with power is when we're deciding who's the greatest, we're also deciding who's the weakest. With power, we decide who we want, and we can also decide who we don't want. Father, speak to us this morning. Speak to each one of us as we look at your word, as we try and understand something about power from the Bible. Help us to understand this in a right perspective. Amen. You see, the thing is, I would say in this whole series, which I've loved, money, what's the challenge with money? The challenge with money is greed. How much do I want? What's the challenge with sex? The challenge with sex is lust. So what's the challenge with power? The challenge with power is pride. How we can get caught up in pride. Abraham Lincoln, he was the president of the United States. He said nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Give him 
power. How do you really test a man's character? Plato, he said this, the measure of man is what he does with power. I would say that this has been a challenge for human beings from the start of time. How can I argue that? Well, if you read in Genesis 1 and 2, it talks about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what are some of the questions that come out? Did God really say? It's like, actually, if you do this, you'd be like God. I would say the biggest temptation right at the thing was how could I grab power for myself? Now, we know that that ended up spoiling relationships between Adam and Eve, and we ended up spoiling relationships with their kids, and ended up spoiling relationships with the whole of creation. And I would say there's still that challenge for us today. Does God really say? I said, maybe I could just grab out and I could be like God myself. A thirst for power. Paul Tournier, he's a Swiss physician and author, says this, Power is the greatest obstacle in the way of dialogue. We pay dearly for our power. We live the drama of the lost dialogue. When we power upon one another, we don't talk. We don't connect. I'll tell you what to do because I'm boss. That could be the challenge. The Bible says it like this. Proverbs 16. Proverbs is a book which is full of principles. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I love the fact that right throughout the Bible, this whole thing of power is talked about in a very real, vulnerable, honest way on many occasions. It doesn't hide it. I was thinking about this just this week. If you think of the story of Samson. Samson, uh, this was in the time of Judges. This was in the Old Testament. It was when they'd sort of gone into the promised land, but they didn't yet have a king. And so these judges would be raised up. Basically, things would go horribly wrong. Often somebody would come and take the people or punish them. The people would get fed up after about 40 years. They'd cry out to God, God, help us. God would raise up a judge. Samson was one of those. If you know anything about him, this guy with his long flowing hair and rippling muscles, and he just he caused destruction on the Philistines. He says this, with a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand men. I mean, can you imagine it? I mean, it literally just got a donkey's jawbone out. This is what the Bible says, and killed a thousand. What power? But where did it all go wrong? Because he said, this is what I've done. And so his power had got in and he suddenly thought, it's all about me. Well, if you know anything about Samson, his relationship with power, what you discover is the power wasn't him, it was God. And he fell into this trap and thinking, it's all about me. I think we get other stories in the Bible as well, which help us understand our relationship with power. God did, uh, I was going to say, relent. Uh, the, the, the people cried out and said, give us a king, give us a king. And so God said, okay. And he gave them Saul, and then there was David, and then there was Solomon. And in some respect, this was the greatest reign of kings in the Old Testament. Then things started to go wrong with Solomon's son. And so what happened in Solomon's son, you can read about it in 1 Kings 12. His name was Jeroboam. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given. What had been the advice? The advice of the people was, show us mercy. Actually, Solomon was very rich and he did great things, but actually he was quite a harsh ruler. 
And they're saying, show us mercy. And it's almost like, if you show us mercy, we'll be with you. And what did he say? He said, forget it. He said, my little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. I'm going to treat you harshly. And what happened? The kingdom split. Changed things forever. You see, he had forgotten that power was about serving the people, and he thought it was about serving himself. That's another lesson, isn't it? Samson was like, he thought it was about himself. Solomon was thought about how he served himself. This was true of Simon. Simon in the New Testament, when he saw in the book of Acts the power of the Holy Spirit, although he was like some magician, some sorcerer, he saw this power and he thought, wow, give me this power. In fact, he even says to the disciples, I'll buy it off you. I'm so desperate for it. You can read about it in Acts 18. Give me the ability so that everyone on whom I lay hands will receive the Holy Spirit. What he thought is, actually, if I could earn this power, if I could control this power, things would suddenly change. What about you? What about me? How do we relate to power? I would even suggest this morning that this was the temptation to Jesus. Yeah. We know, don't we, that after Jesus was baptized, he went into the desert. And when he was in the desert, it was there for 40 days. We know that that Satan literally came and tempted him. And the first temptation was what? Take these stones, turn them into bread. I would say that was the power of self-sufficiency. Oh, I wonder if that's a chain that we need breaking. What was another temptation? The the next temptation was, come on, let's go up on the height of the temple. And when we get up on the temple, you throw yourself off because the angels will catch you. That was the temptation of be spectacular. Oh, man, if I could be spectacular, if I could be a celebrity, then people would follow me. What was the next one? It was actually, I will make you king if you bow down to me. It was almost like to have charge, to be in, in, in responsible ahead of the way that God had put it. I think the devil was almost tempting him again, like he had with Adam and Eve. Here's power. What will you do for it? What about us? How would we respond for those kind of temptations? How do we respond? Well, what I love about the Bible, and I generally do, is when you look at the Bible, you just think, man, it is so honest. We know that Jesus had 12 disciples. How did they respond with Jesus and power? Well, we can read all about it. Jesus, we know through lots of the Gospels, I mean, I think Mark, half the Gospel, there's 16 chapters, about half of them, he's on a journey to go up to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Because that's where he's going to die, and he knows that. And so Mark sort of plots this whole journey going up there, and the whole time there's this power struggle. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. I love this, don't you? Peter, who's one of the disciples, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. (laughs) Jesus, no, you can't say things like that. We're going to reign. We're going to be supreme. You see... He wanted power that was about his comfort, not about the sacrifice. 
Peter really wanted Jesus to have some power that you think, well, actually, the power is going to be making it better for me. I don't like this talk of, of you dying. I don't like the thought of you're going to be killed. That, that's not the kind of power I want. I want the power that will make me comfortable. He's even prepared to rebuke Jesus over it. I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, Peter, you are a complete idiot. Just step back. On the same journey, what did the other disciples do? Well, we can read about it in Mark 9. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they'd argued about this. Who was the greatest? So it's not just Peter now. He's blabbing his mouth off and saying, actually, I want power. All the disciples go, I wonder who's the best. I wonder who he likes the most. When he broke bread, who did he give the bread to first? I think he must be his favorite. There would have been this thing, wouldn't there, about actually, I I, want to be the greatest. Jesus is going to the cross, and they're trying to work out who's the greatest. How embarrassing. And, and you'd have thought that they'd realized, golly, this power is getting us in trouble. Peter's been embarrassed. We've all been humiliated. Mark chapter 10, it's the same journey. Jesus is still taking his disciples to the cross. What happens in Mark chapter 10? James and John. I mean, they don't argue about it quietly. They come to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he says. They replied. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. They are power hungry. They want position. They don't want to be left out. I mean, it's unbelievable, really, isn't it? Peter gets sort of rebuked. The disciples get challenged. And then James and John are still saying, we want to be front row. There's this thing, isn't there, of power. George Orwell in the book 1984, says, we know that no one ever sees his power with the intention of relinquishing it. It's almost this thing, how do I get power and how do I hang on to it? But what about the Christian? How are we supposed to have this understanding of power? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor and theologian in the Second World War, says he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I think that's a whole different take on power, isn't it? Hey, if you're a Christian, then you've come to die. Oh, I thought I came for this or for that. No, you came to die. We know that God loves the humble. God loves the humble. How can I say that? Well, in Isaiah, when the prophet was speaking to the people, he says this, These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Who does God look on favor today? Those who are humble. It says in James, that's a a letter in the New Testament, James chapter 4 verse 6. He gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. How do we understand power? Are we like these disciples that are grabbing it? Are we like Samson and and Solomon and Simon? Or are we really understanding that we are called to be humble? C.J. Mahaney has written this book. He's an American Christian minister. He says the real issue is not if pride exists in your heart, 
but where pride exists and how pride is being expressed. i say that again. The real issue is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed. This whole series, Money, Sex and Power, is meant to be challenging us on things that we face every day. I think we face the challenge of pride every day. I have to be very careful because um, I could say things that I would regret. But I'd like to challenge us. I think our society gets rid of God. And so in God's place, we put ourselves. And so actually, it's all about what do I think and what's best for me. And so therefore, I think that can very much lead to pride. You see, if we realize that God's on the throne and he's our creator, we bow before him and I live for him. Whereas otherwise, well, whatever I say is as good as what you say. You live your way, I live my way. Jesus himself, this whole journey, I mean, I love it. He's challenging. Come on, come on, guys. Where's your, where's your approach to power? Well, you know, don't you, that when he gets to Jerusalem, what do they do? The night before he's about to die, having talked on the road three times to the disciples, they're then having this meal. It's called the Last Supper. It's almost like they're lying all around. You know, they're they're connecting with Jesus. They're eating. What does Jesus do? Something that we've heard too many times, we're no longer shocked by it. Jesus gets up and literally takes off his shirt, wraps it around himself, kneels down in front of the disciples, gets some water out, and then literally says, I will wash your feet. This was such a dirty, low job, no Jew was allowed to do it. You had Gentile slaves to do that. We would never expect a Jew to be touching the feet. Let's be honest. There was 12 others at the table. Nobody else had offered to do the job, had they? Jesus says, I will wash your feet. Literally, his approach to power. Out of place of love, it tells us in John. I wish I could go through it. You can read about it at home. It says, out of love for his disciples, literally, he washed their feet. Out of security of who God had called him to be and the role that he had, he initiated ministry to others. Oh, it challenges, doesn't it? The heart is a murky place. Sometimes I think, well, I'd wash your feet so that you realized I was washing your feet. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think, well, I could do something nice to you so you thought, oh, Pete's doing something. Oh, I mean, Jesus wasn't like that. There was no, it was genuinely, I would do whatever. I set you this example. If you want to understand power, understand this. I've come to serve, not to be served. In fact, we know this so bluntly because Jesus speaks to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20. He called them together and he says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, 
as a ransom for many. Jesus was saying, if you want to understand this relationship to power, I've called you to service. That's a huge challenge, isn't it? I used to be a primary school teacher. I know I hide it well, but there we go. I've let it slip now. The reality was I wanted to get promoted. And so, you know, I used to do assemblies for the school because I thought, well, if I do assemblies, they give me a promotion. I was a school governor. I was on the PTFA. I was running after school clubs. You know, and I, was like, I went to the head and I said, I feel I'm working really hard for you. He says, you are. And I said, well, could you give me a promotion or I'll move? And he says, fine, I'll give you a promotion. Great. You know, two years later, I went back to him again and said, I'd like another promotion. He said, okay, I'll give you another promotion. I went back the next year and said, I'd like training for deputy headship. He said, fine, I'll give you training. You see, it's interesting, wasn't it? Because I kept wanting to go and go. Now, I'm not saying that it's not right to be called to do well. I'm not saying that. But my whole challenge was, what I really need to do is I just need to out-compete all the others. Because that's my heart. It's almost like if, if I could look better in front of the head, he could promote me quicker. I tell you, the church is just totally upside down. I, honestly, we come in here and we... I, I'd like to embarrass lots of people today, but I'm going to start with Steve. I find Steve serving exceptional. Steve is responsible for all the setup on a Sunday morning. I mean, this guy works in a financial authority place. I mean, he's got power, you know what I'm saying? He's telling banks how to behave for a job. And yet he turns up here Sunday by Sunday and thinks, I'll get the box out. I'll help. I'll make sure things happen. If we have a prayer meeting downstairs and I'm just chatting to somebody afterwards, he says to me, what do you want put away, Pete? I think, wow. Incredible, isn't it? We've got to be those that kill pride and learn humility. John Stott, he was an English leader and preacher, says this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. I think, oh, how do we learn that? I want to be very practical. For you as an individual, power is to use to be used to promote self-control not self-indulgence. So often what we think is, God, if I've ever got, you know, I've got a bit of money, fine, I'll just buy whatever I can. How do we have power over ourselves to have self-control rather than self-indulgence? If you're in a home with others, whether it be a family, your parents, a marriage, power is to be used to nurture confidence, not subservience. It's not telling people, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Actually, we want to build confidence. In a marriage, Power is to be used to enhance communication, not isolation. In the church, power is to be used to inspire faith and not conformity. What's God saying? How do we look to him? What we don't want to do is just end up making clones and everybody jump at the same time. What's God saying? In your job, power is to be used to facilitate competence, not promote feelings of inadequacy. How do you, with whatever power you've got at work, encourage confidence in others rather than inadequacy? 
Dr. Martin Luther King, he was a Baptist minister as well as the activist in the state, says this, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. This would be a whole other sermon. I don't have time for it right now. I would say the key to power is understanding divine power rather than human power. I think of Moses that actually tried to kill a man to bring about justice in Egypt and fled for 40 years. And in the 40 years he was in the desert, he understood something of connecting with God so that he didn't just bring freedom to one man, he set a nation free. I think huge power is actually when we connect to God, not when we try and do things on our own strength. I would say that was true of the Apostle Paul. I know that he was a radical against the church. We know that he was approving stonings. But we also know that actually he spent some years away in the desert, getting closer and learning to God before bursting upon the church scene. What about you? What about me? Let's be honest, I couldn't do a talk on power, and I'm trying to sort of teach on this subject rather than unpack one scripture without going to Philippians. Paul, and some people think this was almost a song of the time, whether he composed it himself or not, says this, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ to being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. I think, what an example. He didn't just wash our feet. He endured the cross. I mean, that's humility, isn't it? The reality is, if we're totally honest, I mean, how humbling that must have been. Every picture of Jesus on the cross has got a little cloth just about hanging on. It wouldn't have been like that. Totally abandoned, embarrassed, humiliated. He died in our place. Therefore, God exalted him. Brennan Manning, I love reading his stuff. He's an American author, priest, and speaker. He said there are two types of Christians. Those who imitate Jesus and those who are content to admire him. I would like to throw down the challenge as I end. Are you prepared just to admire him or imitate him? Do you just think, oh, wow, what a great example Jesus Christ was. I can admire him, or will I imitate him with my life? Will I just think, oh, wow, he, he washed people's feet. He literally endured the cross. Or will I think, I could, I could go that way too. What would he have me do? In what way must I die to myself? How could I think about somebody else and a way of serving? It's a huge challenge, isn't it, power? 
What do we have and how do we use it? I don't want to trivialize this at all, but I, I would want to say to people here, we'd encourage everybody to serve on a Sunday. That's a way of being humble, isn't it? I was chatting to someone this week. I would love everybody to serve once on a month on a Sunday and nobody to serve twice. I'd love everyone to think, I could pitch in, I could be humble, I could be involved. We'd love that. You think, how do I do it? Ask Steve for setup. Ask Isaac for the words. Ask Flo if you want to get involved on welcome. If you're not sure, speak to me. But I think, what a great way of getting involved. What we don't want to do is just think, oh, I admire Jesus. I want to imitate him. What about your week? Wouldn't it be great if the people you work with just thought, man, I like You really serve us. One of my golden moments as a parent, if I could be so brave as to boast like this, I'll probably lose my eternal reward, but hopefully it'll help you. When Josh first went to school, he was about four or five, we lived in Camberley. And uh, I'd been a school governor, I'd been a teacher, I understood all these kind of things. So I knew when the staff had their staff meeting. And so I got my little boy, who's, I don't know, he's four and a half, five, in his school uniform, and we got bunches of daffodils. And I knocked on the staff room while they were having their staff meeting. He said, oh, do you mind if I just come in? You know, they're not used to parents breaking in on it, but let's break the walls and see how it goes. And he went round with me, and we said to every member of staff, thank you very much for teaching. And we gave them a bunch of daffodils. One after another, amazing how many staff had just started to cry. I said, we've never known somebody do this. But I thought, surely as Christians, we want to be those blessing. We want to be those humbly saying, what a privilege it is to come and bless you for what you do for us, rather than always sort of powering up and disagreeing. What is a way this week that you could use whatever power you have, the power just to thank the person who's driving the bus? Thank you. I know the four that don't stop, but the one that does, as you're running there, sweating away, (laughs) oh, thank you, you have been a saviour today. (laughs) I mean, why not? We've got that kind of power to encourage, haven't we? I would encourage us to use it. Let's pray. Jesus, we do want to pause and consider you. I can't pray for everyone here, but I worry that I'm like a disciple. I worry that I'm probably saying, God, how could you use your power for me? I worry that in my own heart I could say, where's my position, left or right? I worry that I could be discussing with others, well, I wonder how great I am. Jesus, you washed your disciples' feet and then literally the next day went to the cross. I pray that you'd help us to live radically for you. So often we can almost feel in a society where we have the power to complain the power to demand. I pray that we'll use your power to forgive, to love, and to bring hope. For your glory. Amen.